Assume nothing. Question everything and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. You and I live in a conspiracy theory culture, don't we? But there have been real conspiracies. There really have been some clandestine organizations doing sneaky stuff. And Wondrium's series, The Real History of Secret Societies, has been so enjoyable for me. It's taught by Dr. Rick Spence. He is a history professor at the University of Idaho. And he gets into stuff like the Knights Templar and the not-very-secret-anymore Freemasons. He talks about the passwords and the rituals and the symbols and the secret handshakes. And, you know, since I'm always talking about religion, I was hugely fascinated with those early Islamic assassins. And they spelled it A-S-A-S-I-Y-N-S. That's where we got assassins. They had a 200-year political jihad back in the early days of Islam. Fascinating. This is the kind of amazing stuff you're going to find at Wondrium, my favorite educational platform with audio and video courses, thousands of hours of vetted content, and a Wondrium app that makes it so easy to watch or listen on any device anywhere. I know you're going to love Wondrium as much as I do. They're a great supporter of this broadcast. What are you waiting for? Sign up today. Wondrium is offering my listeners a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. To get this offer, you got to visit my special URL, wondrium.com slash Seth. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Seth. Lots of speaking events coming up. I'll be in Nashville for NanoCon July the 30th. And then in August, that's going to be a busy one. I'm speaking in Ontario. Going to be in Dallas, San Antonio, Houston. I've got Lubbock, Texas coming up the 1st of September. And more coming up. All the details are at thethinkingatheist.com. I'd love to see you on the road. So there is uh, a local politician. I live in the state of Oklahoma. And he has this editorial published in the Tulsa world. Now, this gets sticky because I know him. Right? I know him and he knows me. We've had conversations. He is a devout evangelical Protestant Christian, and he is a representative in the state of Oklahoma. He's part of our government. and He gets elected to office, and he does what you would think a Southern Baptist theocrat would do. He's turning the whole damn place into his Christian church. And I really do like and respect the guy. I mean, if it's a great example of how when you know who he is in his character, you know that he is a tremendously moral person, 
And you have seen him express love and goodness in so many aspects of his life. But he is, as I was, convinced that we are a Christian nation, that we need Christianity to be good and moral. And he's trying to take his country back for God. So he really is. He's a a case study in how Christian nationalists often believe they are the heroes in their own story. But he is being funded by tax dollars, just like my governor, Governor Kevin Stitt, hardcore Protestant evangelical who has weaponized the governor's chair to turn the whole freaking state into his church. So the abortion debate and the recent Supreme Court ruling has just given these people tremendous opportunities to sit back and chest thump and soapbox about our need to return to Christianity to protect life. And this politician whom I know writes this editorial and it talks about how, you know, we now have abortion bans, but this is just the beginning because we must prepare ourselves. There are going to be more and more babies born and we need to be the net that these needy children fall into. And, of course, he's speaking to Christians. It was a very slippery article. In the article, he said, I am a legislator. I am right. I'm a House representative, but I am not here speaking as a House representative. No, no, no. I'm speaking as a citizen of Oklahoma. It's extremely convenient because you get to weaponize your title your position, right? You wouldn't have gotten the, the column space in the, in the op-ed section if you weren't a state representative. And then at the beginning, you say, I'm a state representative. By the way, I'm not really speaking as a representative, but as a man, a man of faith. And he goes on to say that Christian churches need to step up and start thinking about how to adopt these babies that are going to be born. And he's a true believer. He is a person who has in his own life been an advocate for uh, abandoned, neglected, abused children. He deserves tremendous credit for that. But he's filtering everything through a Christian lens, and he's using his state church-separated office to essentially preach the gospel. And I read the article, and I was so frustrated by it. And so I just sat down and hammered out a response, which was published at Only Sky on July the 6th. Let me just read it to you. It's titled, Adopt and Make Them Christian. Oklahoma Politicians Theocratize the Uterus. Oklahoma, my home state, just passed House Bill 4327, the strictest abortion ban in the United States. Already anticipating a spike in new births, theocrats in our government are charging Christian churches and constituents to become adopters and fosters. On a surface level, the biblical call in James 1.27 to look after orphans and widows in their distress may seem an honorable notion, but only if you dig no further. Firstly, while all people are certainly entitled to their private religious convictions, Governor Kevin Stitt and Oklahoma theocrats are using taxpayer-funded positions to preach Christianity to Christians. 
ignoring Oklahomans of other faiths and the growing percentage of religious nuns, Stitt and company embrace Christian dominion theology, where biblical law informs American law to create the Christian nation our founding fathers ostensibly wanted. As the state is their church, the abortion fight isn't merely about bodily autonomy and reproductive rights. It is a holy war against the baby killers, onward Christian soldiers. It's hard for many to accept, but America was never intended as a Christian nation, and state-church separation is a cornerstone of the U.S. Constitution. The First Amendment specifically prohibits the government from establishing a religion, and Article 4 specifies that, quote, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification for public office. John Adams signed the 1796 Treaty of Tripoli, which clearly states that the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. So while many of our founders did hold a personal faith and even referenced a creator, they specifically penned the Constitution as a secular document, God-free. These men had come to these lands, escaping the theocratic overreach of the Church of England, and they didn't want the American experiment to become a church as well. We must also remember that the Bible is hugely problematic on human rights issues, especially those involving women. Beyond the cherry-picked love verses, and those are certainly present, Republican zealots are building their platforms on anonymously written books penned by domineering patriarchs who often subjugated and penalized women through their sexuality. Eve's punishment in Genesis, God gave her agony in childbirth. A woman accused of adultery in Numbers 5, a male tribunal would force her to drink bitter water, which would flush any so-called illegitimate fetus from her womb. The consequences of rape in Deuteronomy 22, Old Testament law commanded the rape victim to marry her rapist after paying off the father. Christianity's texts are loaded with sexual control and punitive consequences targeted at the female. No measure of Old Covenant apologetics excuses them, and myopic recitations of love thy neighbor don't erase them. The biblical Yahweh was a lot of things, but he was definitely not pro-life. Then we have the submit verses that place women under male Authority. We're seeing this play out in today's Oklahoma legislature. Our politicians, mostly privileged white Christian males, are planting their dogmatic flags inside the uteruses of two million Oklahoma women. Oklahoma is laughably inept at science education inverting cart and horse with lofty notions of Christian homes adopting and fostering the unwanted. 
This tactic sets children up for indoctrination into a specific faith and potentially shames Christians who don't want to add another massive commitment to their already crowded and stressful lives. Receive the needy children is a bumper sticker appeal as impractical as it is inappropriate. Escalating the specific issue of unwanted teen pregnancies is Christian purity culture, which sets teenagers up for failure. If puberty begins at roughly 13, and if the median age for marriage in this country is 30, we're looking at 17 years where young people navigate premarital sexuality. Religious youth are often kept clear of science-based sex ed and are instead force-fed sermons about sanctity and sin, abstinence and chastity, purity of mind and body. These tactics backfire spectacularly, and the data confirms this. Repression cultures struggle the most with sex, which is why our state sees more than half of its pregnancies unwanted with 15% of those teenagers. Despite the sermonizing and the shaming, Oklahoma's teen birth rate is near the highest in the nation. Another interesting sex statistic, Oklahoma is ranked fifth nationally for porn use. Welcome to the Bible Belt. How many unwanted pregnancies might have been prevented if the pious weren't so awkward about saying the word condom? Or if they taught responsible sexual practices? Or if they hadn't declared the morning-after pill a murder weapon against a freshly fertilized soul? I was a Christian for three decades, and yet thanks to Christian education... I was nearly 50 before I learned that roughly half of all fertilized eggs get ejected from a woman's body through menses. Thinking that scenario through, if an eternal soul is created at conception and 50% of those souls get flushed down the toilet, this would make the biblical God the most prolific abortion doctor in history. How could any believer call this intelligent design? And why would a Christian be so obsessed with protecting a clump of barely developed cells obviously dismissed by Yahweh? So often conservatives are told horror fiction about babies ripped from wombs by those mustache-twirling libs eager to snuff out sacred life. These dog whistles effectively outrage and activate, but the claims don't jive with the data. Most abortions happen in the first few weeks after fertilization. And the Roe model rightly increases restrictions on abortion as the pregnancy progresses. Almost all late-term abortions involve critical dangers to the mother or the non-viability of the fetus. Those terminations often devastating women anticipating a desperately wanted child. Also in play are minorities and the disadvantaged. Abortion rates spike among non-whites with poor access to education and health care, which pinballs us back to discussions about privileged white males making the rules for poor non-white 
females. With the stripping away of reproductive choice, grown women are infantilized. Rape victims, often pre-teens, are expected to deliver or raise the child of their rapist. And lost is any concept of bodily autonomy, which is strangely ironic, as the same conservatives that met the COVID pandemic with personal choice protests over mask wearing have now stripped reproductive choice from millions of others. When challenged about this exercise in privilege and control, evangelical Republicans can simply invoke God. Convenient. And finally, I take issue with the declarations that Oklahoma's problems must be solved by the Protestant Church. Citizens who are not Christians don't deserve dismissal or exclusion. We are just as Oklahoman, we are just as American. And no politician should tell us to adopt or not, to abstain or not, to abort or not. All good citizens agree that we must reduce unwanted pregnancies. And while abortion is a complex issue, many of us, and even many Bible-believing Christians, consider it an intensely personal choice and not a religious or political one. Ultimately, here in Oklahoma, my tax dollars are funding, against my will, those who religiously maneuver, restrict, and dictate the reproductive lives of others. Christian anti-choicers glean their agenda from Iron Age Bible authors who silenced women, kidnapped virgins, and stoned rape victims. They unconstitutionally deploy political clout to promote Christianity to Christians. They cast votes because they apparently cannot trust a God to intervene directly with a person who is considering abortion. And they remain a machine of mostly men deciding the fates of women. Oklahoma isn't a church, and its residents and democracy deserve better than Christian dominionism. Reproductive choice isn't the domain of the theocrats. It's not their decision, and beyond the walls of their own private homes, it's absolutely none of their business. And that's my article from Only Sky. I'll link it in the description box if you'd like to read it in text form or share it or not. I just so frustrating. <sighs> but now I'm going to enhance my calm and I'm going to speak unto thee as we go to the switchboard and start with area code 870. I got Johnny. What's on your mind, brother? Go ahead. I've been listening to you for a while. I'm a, uh, I am just turned 21. I'm a college student. Uh, I'm actually pretty close to you. I'm in uh, northwest Arkansas. I know you're about two hours away in Tulsa. Uh, and, we're, and we're still in the Bible Belt, even here in the uh, probably most liberal part of northwest Arkansas. But I'm attending the biggest college in the state, University of Arkansas. And there's just a lot of Christians here. Um, not as many as back home in my small farm town in northeast Arkansas. But uh, a lot of Christians, but it's a different flavor of Christianity. And so uh, when I called, the short message I left was to talk about liberal Christianity. And I don't think that it's a direct counter 
or opposite to that conservative revivalist fire and brimstone Christianity. It's more of they just don't they, they don't necessarily counter it. They just don't address either side. I mean, when I go to these liberal churches with friends or, or people like someone I was in a relationship with previously, and they don't ever talk about hell. I, I went there for a year and a half to this, this liberal church at least once a week, and it was a college session, and they never mentioned hell. They hardly ever mentioned sin. All they mention is that you're broken, but that's okay because you always have this, and I don't mean this insulting, you always have this binky or this teddy bear that is Jesus to hold on to no matter how broken you are, how sad, angry, confused you are. And then you'll go to heaven as long as you accept that, and then the session's over. And I was curious to what your views on that flavor of Christianity is because it's hard for us as atheists to kind of counter that. But I, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing because it's still people believing in things without evidence, in my opinion. And I think it's a slippery slope into that fire and brimstone flavor of religion. So what, what's your views on this liberal Christianity that doesn't talk about uncomfortable topics? I think it's situational because there is a big part of me that would rather have the moderate Christian, the person who says, I am a Christian, but I don't hold to the bigoted verses of the Bible. You know, they kind of custom fit their own faith. I'd rather have that, you know, the more egalitarian, generous, yeah. kind, lapel pin kind of Christian. I'll take that over the like new independent fundamentalist Baptist hate preachers, right? And I think that a lot of the reason that are often many times the reasons that people drift into this sort of, I call it lapel pin religion, is because they don't really care that much about the Bible. Maybe they attend church, but they live largely secular lives. It's just kind of the window dressing of their existence. Casual, cultural Christians. My main fight really isn't with them. I understand your frustration, though. I feel that many of them enable the hardliners by yeah. sort of sitting on their hands, not speaking out. And you have to wonder if some of them, not sort I don't think a ton, but I think some of them are kind of cheering on the extremists. You know, they get to sit over here where it's safe and cozy in the cheap seats. And over here, the, the hardliners are going right on the front lines and it's crazy. And the people spectating are sort of secretly under their breath going, oh, yeah, good, go, go, go team. You know? I mean, I yeah. get that frustration for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've I, been wanting to, to do some writing and do some activism for a while now. And actually this past week I started a, a blog similar to that of what uh, you're familiar with Neil Carter with Godless and Dixie. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I started something similar to him. And, and so I'm writing my second article and I'm just, I, I'm doing kind of response posts to some sermons and, and posts that these liberal churches are putting out. Because in, in my age group, when, when someone says they're a Christian, that's what they mean. I mean, they like you said, they live mostly secular lifestyles, but at the end of the day, that, that is what they believe. That, that's what their worldview is. And like you said, I, I think it is a slippery slope to either cheer on those extremists, or it's a slippery slope as with age, they become a lot more conservative once they get start a family and they're starting families at the you know age of 20 now which i guess people have always done but the, these liberal these liberal christians are starting families young still and i just i've noticed on facebook and it just seems that people slowly become more and more conservative as they get older and i'm just speaking with you know anecdote from i, from I don't experience. know you know i i think that that the trend is actually 
a little bit different. I think a lot of people as they age are drifting a little bit more away from the hardline stuff, which is why this generation is not as conservative as the generation before, which is not as conservative as the generation before. We're seeing the rise of, you know, the religiously unengaged. Well, I think that's happening because the culture is becoming less dogmatic overall. I think it's one of the reasons that these panicky power players are trying to weaponize the courts and the halls of government because they realize they are hugely losing the battle at the demographic level. But, you know, I, I know a lot of beautiful people who are Christians who they don't hate anybody. They they totally, I mean, genuinely, sincerely accept LGBT people and and they share most of my values. We simply disagree on the God question. But I would like to see them beyond other examples. Uh, there are some people out there like Tony Campolo and John Pavlovitz and, and Kristen Dumay, et cetera, who are speaking out against the hardliners. But I would like to see more of these moderates call their own camp to accountability Definitely. for sure. Yeah. Um, and so this this series of blog posts that I'm going to do is I it's very hard to find, but these liberal churches will sometimes address those uncomfortable topics. And what I've found is when they do, they will often take a I mean, it's not strong conservative, but they will take a pretty conservative stance. For example, the next one is a, a liberal college church out of Dallas, I believe. And they were saying the question is, can you be homosexual and still be a Christian? And they start off by saying, of course. But then they tell you that you shouldn't uh, engage in any sort of activities that a, a straight relation a straight person would in their relationships. They spout off some very questionable statistics from like the 80s and 90s from Australia that are impossible to find online. And so my concern is that while 90% of what they talk about doesn't hurt anybody, I'm just afraid that the fact that they do accept parts of the Bible is just a slippery slope to support some of the things that we don't want supported. Some of it does seem a little bit like bigotry light. I remember uh, mega pastor yes. Joel Osteen was asked once about uh, non-heterosexuals, and he skips right over all the hardline black and white right there in print Bible verses, both Old and New Testament, which condemn homosexuals. Instead, Pastor Olstein says, well, you know, I, it's not God's best. Those were his words. It's not God's best. So he's saying, eh, you're kind of out of step and you're probably, uh, you know, in rebellion against God. But, you know, he still loves you and happy, happy, joy, joy feelings. And it does seem like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And you do feel a sense of um, piety and condescension in that answer. It's not God's best, you know, as if he knows what's best for the rest of us. Yeah, bigotry light is, is a, a great phrase for that. Do you mind if I ask one more question? No, go ahead. What do you think about the fact that a lot of people my age, and I think it is just among all ages, it's just I typically talk to people my age. Or the whole point that they're religious is because they are told that they're broken from birth, that they don't have a choice, that they will forever make mistakes and do the wrong things and have heartbreak and feel heartache. And they'll, they'll always make bad decisions. But that's okay because God had a bad weekend in the form of his son. I personally, with a little bit of thought, not a ton, feel like that's not a great ideology because it allows you to kind of take a back seat to your life, to not be as emotionally aware, not be as empathetic when it comes to relationships and conversation and just how you treat people. Because it's okay to mess up because 
you're saved and you're going to go to heaven anyways as long as you believe this thing. I mean, at the end of the day, even in, with liberal Christianity, that doesn't seem like a great ideology when it comes to just caring about people and producing more human flourishing. You know, at the end of the day, for me, I think the biggest reasons that people believe and stay in a belief culture are geography, family, ritual, community, and comfort. If we look at people who are a specific religion, you're not finding Southern Baptists coming out of Yemen, right? Those people are going to be almost certainly Muslim. If you look in specific denominations of Protestant Christianity, you can almost peg it by geography. Well, the Southern Baptist and the Assemblies of God Pentecostal, that's going to be more in the Southern Bible Belt states. And if you go down to Mexico, it's overwhelmingly Catholic. And if you go up north, you'll find the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Episcopals. And if you go out west, you'll find a lot more of sort of the New Agey spiritism, that kind of thing. I mean, you can really see family, geography, ritual, community, and comfort. These five gears in the machine are a great reinforcer for people who exist in those cultures, and it's really hard to bust out. I don't think much of it has to do with theology. I think a lot of it has to do with where were you born, what do you know, what makes you comfortable, what alleviates your fears of being alive in this crazy world, and do you ever want to go against your social group because then you're on your own, right? So then you've got the societal reinforcements, in-group reinforcements taking place. I don't know. I'm babbling, Johnny. <laughs> I'm no, sorry. no, no, no. It's, it's all good. I'm just babbling. So you're right. The question really comes down to, is it true? Is there any reason to believe it's true? And once we decide that question isn't the most important question, I think we're in a real world of problems. You know, is it true? I think that's fair, whether it makes me uncomfortable, whether it makes me unhappy, whether it makes my life worse. I still need to know, is it true? And I think that's a fair criticism, Johnny. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. You know, whether or not something's true is the, the biggest question. And I've never been a fan of let people believe what they believe if that's what they want, because that's how you get SCOTUS decisions like we had. That's how you get, you know, child genital mutilation legalized and things like that. So I agree with you there. Johnny, I'm glad to meet a fellow Bible belter who's still kicking. You hang in there up there in Arkansas, okay? Yes, sir. We'd love to see you over here. I don't know how many of us there is, but uh, yeah, I'd love to meet you someday at one of the conventions. Have a great one. We'll catch you later. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Have a good one. Five, five, nine. I got Danny. Danny, you with me? Hi, yes. Hi, how's it going? I'm well. Thanks for calling. What's on your mind? My question is, so sometimes when I'm debating people or if I'm just having a conversation about religion or God, and especially if the other side is uh, religious and I'm obviously an atheist and I'm trying to talk to them, I've always had a problem with like articulating my responses. And I guess basically my question to you is how, how would I go about uh, maybe having a better approach to uh, answering someone's questions, uh, maybe more like a religious person's questions that's not like that doesn't like immediately give off like hostility, if that makes any sense. Cause I think I have kind of an issue with that. And I guess I like the way you articulate your, uh, your responses. And so I kind of was just wondering if you had any advice on that, um, on that like field. What's your goal? Are you engaging someone who is defending the Bible and you're trying to convince them that you may have a point that, that you might be right in criticizing? Are you trying to deconvert them? What's your end zone? It's more so sometimes when I'm uh, with my other friends that aren't really the most religious, but they'll maybe just, we'll, we'll be bringing up the topic. And like one of my friends the other day 
we got brought up the topic of the existence of God and if he even exists or whatever. And I think whatever he had said, I kind of got stumped and just trying to figure out how to like articulate my answers more, I guess. It's a hugely broad question because every conversation is going to be different and every interlocutor is going to be different, right? Right. Are you engaging somebody who's passive or someone who's really aggressive? Are you engaging someone who knows what they're talking about and can draw from the, the well of apologetics? Or are you talking to somebody who is really an emotional believer who knows it because they feel it and they saw Jesus in a dream and all that kind of stuff? And right. So I think you have to assess who you're speaking to. I think you have to determine what your goal is. And I don't think it's practical for you to walk into a conversation expecting that you're going to change the mind of okay. a Bible defender or a believer. I think the goal is to have a civil conversation that humanizes both of you. Ask a lot of questions. It leaves the burden of proof on the other person. So instead okay. of saying, yeah, there's absolutely no reason to believe that donkeys could speak Hebrew in the book of Genesis, right? Which immediately goes after them and then they start to squirm. You can put it in question form. Well, you know, there's a story in Genesis where Balaam actually was arguing with his uh, donkey. And I know there are uh, animals that talk in the Quran and in uh, some of the Hindu holy books and whatnot. I mean, do, how do you feel about the idea that a donkey spoke in Hebrew? Do you, do you hold to that? And, and why do you hold to that? And I'm curious. And there's a way to phrase it where it doesn't sound like you're condescending. It doesn't okay. sound like you're coming after them. But using the Socratic method, asking questions, shifts the burden of proof to the people making the truth claim. So that tends to often help to diffuse some of the more combative elements of those conversations. I wouldn't make them long conversations. I think shorter is better. You're not going to change the world in one car ride with a theist. You can have the longer exchanges, but especially at first, kind of skip like a rock over that stuff, man. Just skip through it and kind of plant a few seeds. I would not ever, if possible, ever raise my voice. I think okay. the second it becomes emotional, you've lost the battle. Not that we aren't passionate about what we think and about protecting human rights and about trying to debunk the bunk, because we are. And I think we've all felt that well up in our chest, and we just want to get it out. And this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And how can you possibly believe this? And oh my God, are you have are you even remotely cognizant of the damage that you are doing to this country and my fellow human beings? And before you know it, you really feel that vein on your forehead start to pop out, right? You felt that, haven't you? Oh, de definitely, yeah. That's, that's what I think okay. the biggest issue is sometimes is trying to talk to someone, and I just want to, exactly what you just said, just want to do that, and it's very difficult sometimes to not do that. So, And how often, when that happens, do you both leave feeling like it was a good conversation and everybody got something out of it, right? Usually we leave those exchanges feeling frustrated. What the hell? God, why don't they understand? Why aren't they listening to me? Why didn't I get any traction? Now they seem to be even more dogmatic and I don't even want to deal with them anymore. And, and it's, it's funny because it seems to have the opposite effect. The more we shout to convince, the less convincible they are. You got to get in front of that, Danny. I, I'm convinced that as you go in, be aware of the tone and temperature of your approach. You're strong. 
You're not weak. You're not a you know, manby-pamby sort of going through all these conversations. You can very much be a strong person in your convictions. But I right. think you can be like Hitchens was. Christopher Hitchens was hugely yeah. strong. Well, he wasn't shouting people down and pounding his fist on the podiums. You know, he did what he did with strength, but also with a kind of strong, gentle, I don't even know what the word is, but you catch what I'm saying, Danny? Does that make any sense to you? Oh, definitely does. Yeah, that's why I've always admired uh, Sam Harris as well. I'm sure you're probably familiar with him, but I started, he was one of the first people Mm -hmm. that I ever, uh, one of the first people I ever watched, I think a video or something of that kind of got me into this whole thing. And I I just really admired how definitely him and, and Christopher Hitchens, just like the way they carried themselves and the way they talked and stuff. And that's, that's definitely something I'm, I'm aspiring to, to get better at. So definitely. Well, yeah. don't punish yourself for not knowing the answer to every question that comes up. If somebody you're in a conversation with and they bring up a Bible reference or a piece right. of Old Testament history or a certain apologetic, and that's not your wheelhouse, you haven't gone there, that's just going to happen, man, because oh, yeah. we're talking about a hugely complex thing. It's okay to not know the answer. If you feel that sense of panic, you can be like, well, you know, that's a great question. I think we should explore that. I would like some time to explore that in a genuine interest in finding out what is true. Can you tell me what your perspective is? And then I'd like to sort of navigate this and we could talk about it again. I mean, that's one of those things where you're admitting I'm not omniscient, but I do want to learn more. I think you can practice on your own if you are this sounds stupid but if you're on your own you're driving in your car and you're not too self-conscious about it if you want to go through verbally go through sort of these situational exchanges what might they say what might my response be what if they say this what if i do that practice it doesn't make you perfect but it makes you better and i think it's okay to situationalize and practice your exchanges before you have them and just uh try not to lose your mind over the frustrations that you will organically, naturally feel, I think you're going to be fine. Okay, Danny? Okay. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it, man. Um, I appreciate you having me on, and I hope you have a great day. All right. Thanks a bunch. Name calling. That's another one. Like, if you get so mad that you just start throwing out the ad homs, you know, you're an idiot. You're one of the stu. You must be dense. You're this, you're that. You know, it may be true, but the second you're in, an exchange, and you resort to the insult, you've lost. You've lost whatever high ground you had. You've lost any opportunity to actually make a point because you've gone, you've gotten personal, you know. I've got more listeners, more calls standing by. We will continue the broadcast right after this. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> I so appreciate your support as a patron. My patrons get this broadcast two days early and they get it totally commercial free. It's interesting. You know, a lot of people who I've spoken to said that they didn't really even become patrons to uh, to get a commercial free show. They just listen on their regular iTunes app or on iHeartRadio or Spotify or whatever. They just wanted to be a supporter. And uh, I am so thankful For you, if you would like to become a patron, log on and sign up. Patreon.com slash Seth Andrews. And our broadcast with your phone calls continues. 928. I don't see a name, but 928, are you with me? Yes. Hello. Hey, thanks for calling. What do I call you? Carlos. Carlos, thanks for being a part of the show. What's on your mind? You and I used to listen to the same contemporary Christian music back in the day. I'm a big fan of Guardian and uh, Phil Kage and Whiteheart and all those guys. Wow. And so we listened to the same stuff back in the day. Children of the 80s, we must be, yeah. And uh, I am a retired pastor. And since I retired, I've been taking a new look at the Bible and I am in a serious process of deconverting. I have uh, realized that uh, the Old Testament is, uh, I, ca- I told my wife, I said, we got into talking about, uh, about Noah's Ark, and I said, now look, this is a parable. It's not historical. <laughs> and she was rather troubled by that. Hmm. But uh, fables is, I call those things parables instead of fables because I'm still in the process of deconverting. But I no longer believe any of the stuff in the Old Testament. I'm still struggling with my background. I I grew up working at a funeral home and saw death around me and had a very negative view of life. And then when I discovered the resurrection, it just gave me this whole hope that life was meaningful. And now that I'm in this process of deconversion, 
and I'm seeing all these massive shootings around us, I'm beginning to feel despair again and want to hold on to that hope. And so you are such an excellent communicator. Walk me through this process, please. (laughs) Well, I have a show, a conversation coming up with a former pastor. His name is D.B. Ramsey. And I found his story hugely compelling, which is why I reached out to him. It's going to air, if not next week, I think it'll air the week after. And uh, so I would encourage you to be here for that because uh, his name is Dave. It's just a a precious guy who Mm -hmm. did what you have done. You know, he preached the gospel from behind the podium. I've talked to so many people who were clergy or ministers in some way. And once you've committed yourself, it becomes so much a part of your identity. I can't imagine what's going on you know, under your skin right now. You're probably wondering about all kinds of other things. If I don't believe this, then what happens to that, right? If A is not true, then what happens to B? Is that going on in your skull these days? Um, all I'm looking at right now are the subjective moments when I was overwhelmed by God, and he seemed so real to me. Other than those subjective moments, uh, I've already lost everything else to hold on to. I, I'm not clairvoyant, so you're, the complexities of your journey are mm-hmm. they're unknown to me. I'm also I've done a lot of this, but I, I just don't. I'm not an expert. Like you know, I, I I'm trying to think of people who might be better at having this conversation, but I'm going to do my best. Okay. Well, I I have um, spoken to the people at theclergyproject.org, and I haven't are. had the nerve to join it yet. I no longer believe in afterlife, heaven, hell, spirit, all that. That's all gone for me. There is a thinking that I had when I was in the church that if I don't live forever, does it steal the joy from this life? If I'm never going to see those I've lost, am I prepared to accept that? What well, I'll call it a reality, that there's at least no proof or evidence for an afterlife, a heaven you know, that kind of posthumous mm-hmm. existence with happiness and pearly gates and white light and family reunions that was once so attractive. Because, you know, those of us who have loved and lost, that was so appealing to be so convinced that we would see them one day again. And uh, there were a lot of those kind of connectors for me when I was a believer that I miss, but wanting them to be true doesn't mean they're true. And I had to jump over that. I just had to continue to force myself over that speed bump. You know, people would often ask me in conversation, well, don't you want to see your friends again in heaven? And I I would be like, well, of course, I would love to be reunited with the people I've cared so much about who I've lost. But what does wanting have to do with what is? And I had to will myself over those little speed bumps to try to, th- to remember that, you know, my very human nature to want something to be true does not determine truth. And then if I come to a conclusion that there's no evidence that anything exists beyond my final breath here on planet Earth, then that adds a real urgency to the moments here. Then I know that I've got to make the most of every second, and I should say the words that need to be said, and I should set those mm-hmm. goals and work toward those dreams and love who I want to love and, 
and stand for my values becomes even more urgent because there is no tomorrow. That's oh, that's yeah. kind of how I've approached it. You know, I don't know. Is it something like that going on in your mind these days? You know, whenever somebody I know passes away, I just hold up my finger and go, the candle is out. It's over. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's what I feel about that now. But like I said, I'm beginning to uh, descend into a little bit of a, man, this world is really a mess and it's getting worse. Before I had the hope that we're making the world a better place, but now I know it's up to us. There's no supernatural force that's going to come out and help us. And if I can help frame that, and this is just one guy's perspective, but the best things that the church has done to improve the world are not church things. The church often did them well, but they were human things. So those endeavors, the charity and the goodness and the compassion and, and constructing this better world, that's a human endeavor. That has not gone away. We're very involved in that. I'm, I'm at an awkward place because my wife, I can't tell her that I don't believe anymore. Her brother's a pastor. Her grandfather was a church college president. All of her siblings are all in the church. My kids are all in the church. This is a secret journey that I'm on that uh, I don't have anybody to share it with. And the consequences of her finding out are, is that scary? I mean, she, she like... would be exceedingly sad. I had a glimmer of hope last year when she decided to read through the Bible. <laughs> the first step of becoming an atheist is to really read the Bible. And uh, she didn't get very far into it till she said, God's not a very nice guy, is he? <laughs> but it didn't push her over the cliff. No, and I've, I've done a little bit of pushing lately. Um, you know, we read this, the story of the, the flood, and I'm like, you know, there were stories about this 1,000, 1,500 years before in other cultures. This is just a retelling of an old story of someone saying, now this is how it really happened. But uh, it's, it's just a parable, like the parable of the prodigal son. It's no more true than that. It's just a, a story. And uh, she, she said, uh, why are you trying to discourage me? <laughs> and I couldn't yeah. answer that. Well, it's a great example of the emotional connections that we have to a mm -hmm. belief, right? We take beliefs personally. And mm -hmm. at some point, it's not really about the data. It's not about the bullet points. It's not about what the verses say. It's more about, you know, this is part of my identity. And she's going to protect that. And it becomes hugely frustrating because you walk into the room with some really good criticisms. But those criticisms mm -hmm. don't seem to really be buying you anything except frustration across the board. At the end of the day, I just think an authentic life is the greatest gift you can give to yourself. I think any worthy God would see someone trying to live an authentic life and would never punish, but would always reward that. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. if you and your wife ever have that sit down, that's part of the conversation I would have. I don't believe in a God that would punish me for trying to do this mm -hmm. honestly and for asking hard questions and for wanting authenticity. And I want to take yeah. an honest journey. And I just want you to know I'm the same man you married. I am just on a journey as so many of us are. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and I hope that you will see me on this journey as, uh, as someone who would be regarded meritoriously by any worthy deity, you know? Yeah. One of these days she's going to figure it out because every now and then she looks up our friends on Facebook and when she scans my Facebook, she's going to see 
R and Ra and you and the thinking atheist all on my Facebook and go, why oh, are yeah. you following oh, yeah. these people? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, just email me and I'll find a show that she can enjoy that doesn't go after Christianity but something that maybe tackles another faith or one of our general knowledge shows or maybe the weird news type broadcast mm -hmm. or maybe the second mm -hmm. show that I make, the second podcast I'm preparing. If she ever goes there and has questions, we'll see if we can find a gateway show to perhaps allow her to acclimate to the rest of these conversations. At the end of the day, I just think it's amazing that you have given yourself permission to go as far as you have. After, you know, you're pot committed or you have been a lifetime at the pulpit. And now you're asking really, I mean, very difficult questions. And yeah, you're doing had, so with yeah, great courage nearly, and sincerity. Yeah, I had nearly 40 years. And, uh, you know, we're still going to church because I, I can't not do that with her. <laughs> sure. Sure, I get and, it. Uh, I get it. You know, and I, I'm, I'm not going to hurt our pastor by beginning to, you know, say, well, you know, this really isn't true. <laughs> I'm just I mean, I, and going along for the ride. But uh, As long as you don't spend all of the rest of your life sitting on your hands while everyone else gets to be authentic, that would break my heart. And I know there is a cost-benefit discussion that only you can have. And I know a lot of people, they go and sit in the pews or in the chairs on Sunday, and it's more of a, an experiment, a social experiment, or they're going just as a chess move kind of a thing. But mm -hmm. I would encourage you, I hope you don't spend all of your remaining days, years on this earth keeping everybody else comfortable. I think at some point you deserve to let people know who you are authentically. And it's my hope that maybe those doors will crack open somewhere down the way. Okay? Well, wow. That has really given me some things to think about. That's gonna, I'm going to work on that one for a long time now. Well, I mean, yeah. go at your speed, brother. I mean, go hey. at your speed. I'm just the guy sitting across the table talking. But, well, uh, you know, I... Excellent I, communicator. I appreciate listening to you so much. Well, thanks, brother. I mean, I, just, I know what it's like to keep the peace. But so often, peace is not peace. It's just kind of an absence of conflict. And we seem mm -hmm. to be the ones doing all the bending. <laughs> We're the ones who are always trying to make everybody else feel comfortable and I just feel like, eh, you know, maybe it's not my job to make sure everybody else is comfortable. Maybe I need to be true to myself. And if you come to a point where the cost benefit on that score is worth it for you, all my best. And for lack of a better way of saying it, God bless you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you so much. This means uh, a lot to get to visit with you. It's a pleasure to talk to you as well. Take care. All right. Some people would be like, well, if he doesn't say everything he wants to say now, he's a coward. I've heard that before by some people. That's totally wrong. It's totally bogus. Sometimes we are in a long game. I've got Natalie in Baltimore. Natalie, you with me? Hi there. What's up? What's on your mind? Okay, so this is going to sound absolutely ridiculous, but I kind of wanted to know what your thoughts are regarding superstition. I know this is weird, but I can't seem to, to shake baseball superstition. I mean, it's not like I actually believe in it, but I still act on it, if that makes sense. So basically, the Baltimore Orioles have invariably been somewhat disappointing throughout my adult life, aside from some fluke years here and there where they got to the playoffs and, of course, did not win anything. Um, they haven't been to the World Series in like 
four decades, I think. So now they they have an eight-game win streak going, and I can't help but be inattentive about what shirt I have on, and I yell at the commentators <laughs> when they start talking about stats. I'm just wondering what you think about this. You know, um, is it just harmless fun, or do you think maybe allowing it to happen in some way might stand in the way of my credibility as a skeptical person? No, no. I think it's harmless fun. I mean, you've already demonstrated here. You're kind of winking through this conversation. You know that you haven't called down the spirits to bless the Orioles. But there is something that resonates with you that makes you feel good, assured about wearing the shirt or having the logo or doing whatever ritual you are. I think if it brings you joy and comfort and if it enhances the experience of being a fan, do it. I'm a big tennis fan, right? Rafael Nadal, one of the greatest players in the history of the game, hugely superstitious guy, so much so that before he will go out and play, he has to have the labels on his water bottles facing a specific and precise direction. And he will sit there and just sort of adjust them so that the labels are just so. And only when they are just so will he then go and play the point. Now, would I ever tell Rafa, dude, your water bottle superstition is crazy and stupid? No, I look at him and I think, well, something about that kind of centers him in his brain and he's one of the greatest of all time. Let him do it. <laughs> There's no skin off my teeth, you know? And I've been there. I've had, you know, if I won with a specific scenario, I'd be like, oh, wear those shoes. Or, hey, Natalie, wear that dress. That's your victory dress on the tennis court or something like I mean, whatever. If it, if it enhances the experience for you, you're self-aware enough to know what's going on. Do it. Enjoy it. Okay? Okay. Hopefully they win again. No, I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't follow them. Should I be rooting for them? Yes, please. They, they, need, right. they need it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll go find some lucky socks or uh, or do something, and I'll see if I can enhance the uh, the the energy, the victory the energy that's heading that your direction. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Natalie. You. you take care of yourself. Thanks, you too. All right, bye. I just think that's harmless fun. I mean, there, some of the hardliners might be like, "This is just ridiculous. Why in the world would you ever encourage anyone to practice some sort of a superstition?" And I'm just thinking, hey, get over yourself. This is just fun. Wear your lucky shirt. Wear the colors. You know, move the, put your labels on your water bottles wherever you want to. If it puts you in a spot where you feel like you can do better, play better, whatever, and go ahead. Just get off my teeth. I don't care. 954. Hi, who's this? This is Hector from uh, South Florida. Hector, speak nice and loud so I can hear you. What's on your mind? Uh, I was going to bring up the feeling of loss I had when. I kind of came to the conclusion that I really don't believe. You know, I was born and raised Catholic. In my family, we had uh, issues with religion. My dad jumped over to the JWs when I was around nine, ten, and you know, about to go into adolescence, and everything was kind of turned upside down. But I, I held. I stayed Catholic until I got married and had children, and did the seven sacraments with the kids. But in the last five years, it's kind of like. I'm seeing too many holes, and I'm seeing there's a lot of things that just don't make sense. And I come up with more questions than I had than I, than answers that I had. And when it came, and it occurred, when I kind of hit, I don't know what you want to say, hit the wall, but when it, it occurred to me that one day, 
I had this tremendous sense of, of mourning that everything I've done and everything I've did my whole life and I'm 50, you know, it just felt like somebody died. Somebody close to me, but died. You know, is that something that you've ever seen or, you know, what's your thoughts on that? I think it's natural for a great many people. There's no wrong way to deconstruct. There's no wrong way to deconvert. Some people feel liberated and they are filled with joy. I no longer have to worry about any of this stuff that bothered me. Other people had a real and very different attachment to their faith, their religion, their ideas about the world, about life after the world, and they miss some of that. They miss their community. They miss the idea of heaven. They miss the the sort of assurance that someone or something somewhere was in control, and they grieve that. And that grief is valid. And it's not a sign of weakness. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It simply means that you had a deep emotional connection to a belief that was just part of your marrow, right? It was so deeply embedded yeah, within you. It was. It and was. grieving some of that is just fine. It doesn't mean you've cheated yourself intellectually in terms of your values. It just means, you know, there were some things that I, I really wanted to believe, and I kind of missed them and grieved them. I know that there's no reason to believe it, but I have feelings about it. I think that's just fine, brother. That's just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, it's, uh, like I said, there's a certain feeling of uh, tremendous weight taken off at one point. I, I think that's what I felt, felt initially at first. And then as I kind of let it sink in and I was like, you know, my, I, my mother had passed away so 20 years back. So it's like, Oh gosh, you're not gonna, you know, you always had that feeling of hanging, you're going to see them again one day or, you know, that person that you knew they who lost. And, um, that's when you start sinking in and it's just something that, um, you know, you wrestle with. Um, yeah, what know, if the world really is chaotic? What if there is no rhyme or reason or master plan? You know, I lost somebody, a uh, buddy in a car accident when I was 18. And I spent decades believing one day I would see Tim again. You know, well, we're going to reunite in heaven at this beautiful mm -hmm. place. And I had to come to terms with the, uh, the reality that there's no evidence that I'll ever see Tim again. And I have to face that. Doesn't, it doesn't mean that I am that I want heaven necessarily. That I'm going to force myself to claim to believe in heaven. It just means that you know I I grieve the reality that we're never going to see each other again. There's no reason to think so, and and I think that's fine, brother. You know that you take your journey, feel what you need to feel, and I I think that's valid, man. Really, uh, really uh, kind of brings that live for the moment and appreciate who you have around you because. Yeah, carpe the fucking diem is what Dave Warnock says, and I I agree, brother. So go out there and carpe some diem, okay? I'm going to go with some carpe and diem. <laughs> right. I appreciate that. Thanks for calling. All right, buddy. Take care. Thanks. We'll see you later. All right, bye. Carpe diem. There is a great quote by Percy Shelley about God. I think it's relevant here, considering the phone calls we've had. Percy Shelley says, If he is infinitely good, what reason should we have to fear him? If he is infinitely wise, why should we have doubts concerning our future? If he knows all, why warn him of our needs and fatigue him with our prayers? If he is everywhere... 
why erect temples to him? If he is just, why fear that he will punish the creatures that he has filled with weaknesses? If grace does everything for them, what reason would he have for recompensing them? If he is all-powerful, how offend him? How resist him? If he is reasonable, how can he be angry at the blind, to whom he has given the liberty of being unreasonable? If he is immovable, by what right do we pretend to make him change his decrees? If he is inconceivable, why occupy ourselves with him? If he has spoken, why is the universe not convinced? If the knowledge of a god is the most necessary, why is it not the most evident and the clearest? Was it the scientist Richard Feynman who said God was always invented to explain mystery? But the more we begin to solve mysteries, the smaller our gods become. Of course, we just saw the first of the new images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Holy cow! Our ancestors didn't even know what the stars were. And now we are peering into the universe. We're seeing things that no one has ever seen before. We're seeing millions of not stars, but galaxies, understanding more and more the vast universe that may not care if we exist, but it is no less amazing to witness it, and it's no less a privilege to be alive. We are alive to see it, and that is pretty damn amazing. I am off to the production room. I am working on my second podcast, which is going to release in just a few weeks. I will have details on that. In the meantime, you are so appreciated Go out there and carpe some diem, and I will catch you next time. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring The Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.